Well, the first night when we read the Metta Sutta uh, together, um, do you still have it with you? Everybody have one? Or can look at one? It just occurs to me it would be lovely if we read it together. Maybe it'll sound different to you now than it did the first night. Or you'll see which is your most compelling phrase in it. Hmm? Are there any... Or sit next to somebody... Sit next to somebody. Someone will share. Okay. This is what should be done. This is what should be done. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, indented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, just from the heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I just love it. Don't you like that? <laughs> So Donald and I thought we'd talk a little bit about particularly the end of the sutta tonight, the last lines of it, which have to do 
with what would happen if we really did this practice, first of all, the practice of morality, of uh, ethical living, which the whole beginning paragraph has to do with. What if we lived not doing the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove? I love that because it, 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 it brings up for me, it evokes the feeling of such high level of attention that suppose we made a decision that I wouldn't do the slightest thing that would be harmful to anyone, that the wise would later reprove, that would cause suffering. I'd have to really have a high level of attention as well as a high level of intention. So I'd already be really awake to be doing that. The path of ethical living is in, in, in the terms of the, the Buddhist path as important a path as the path of meditation. That sometimes we think of Buddhism as a, as a, as a meditation, as a religion of meditation. I think it's a re- religion of ethics and kindness that's enforced and, and, and that's reinforced by paying attention. It also provides a path for the direct seeing of the truth of the cause and the end of suffering, both in everyday macroscopic terms and in the smallest nuances of the mind tensing in response to stress and then relaxing when it sees clearly. So it really is the contemplative path as well. And the whole middle section of the sutta, starting from the words wishing in gladness and in safety, which are the two components, that's what you need to have, gladness and safety in your, in your mind in order to be available for your own good heart to manifest so that you could wish well boundlessly to all beings. And I think about that maybe being the pivotal line in the whole sutta. What will I do in order to assure that my mind feels glad, uplifted, and safe? And all the practices that we do, whether it's the, the, the practice of being quiet or the practice of doing things slowly or the practice of uh, repeating blessings to ourselves on behalf of ourselves or other people, they're all on behalf of gladdening and reassuring the heart and mind so that it will automatically of its own self wish well, wish well. Another way of saying that last sentence is are in the service of uh, uh, evoking wisdom so that goodwill is automatic. Because when we have wisdom, we look around and we see those very same truths that we talked about this afternoon, that everybody is struggling. Everybody we see going around, everybody's got a story. And even if the story at this point isn't filled with difficulty, everybody's got things that challenge their mind all the time. We lose people, hopes, dreams don't happen, all kinds of things that we have to accommodate. And we get up every morning and put on our shoes and socks and continue like it's easy. It's not easy for anybody. And from our own experience of that, We can look around and assume that it's not easy for anybody everywhere. And it brings such a tenderness of heart that really wishing well for all beings becomes the natural response when we're awake, when wisdom is present. For my own self, my wisdom stays present as long as there's a certain amount of equanimity in my mind and balance. It's equanimity that keeps clarity in the mind. It's equanimity that wisdom depends on and it's so easy to uh, 
I think to myself sometimes, it's tremendously easy to become annoyed. <laughs> it is. How many people here got annoyed at anything today? See, and we weren't even, we didn't go anyplace. We didn't do anything. You know? <laughs> person on the line in front of you was too slow, or something happened, or they were taking showers just when you wanted to take a shower. There's something that happens in the mind says, Ugh, I don't like this. You have to think, well, it isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. Okay, what do I do now? I think this is the practice of continually restoring equanimity on the mi- in the mind on behalf of, not so that we'll walk around equanimous all our life, and that would be the end. It wouldn't be bad, maybe, but it wouldn't be productive of a different world. <laughs> it wouldn't be productive of transformation. What I want is enough equanimity for me to be able to see what's happening in the world. So in my family, in my community, in my world, I can make a difference, can act, I can do something in response to the fact that it's very hard to be a person. So we start with that as a sort of the bottom line. That's what we're, we're doing, the practice of ethics, because it, it, it creates equanimity in the mind and it keeps equanimity in the mind. And we're doing the practice of uh, this contemplative practice of continual blessing because it creates calm and concentration, which leads to equanimity because of, through clarity. And there's a way in which the teaching on, on the Brahma Viharas, those, those four words that Don, Donald talk, talked about before, the, of uh, metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka the friendliness and compassion and appreciative joy, empathic joy and equanimity. The Buddha called the Brahma Viharas, a Brahma is a godly, something godly, and a Vihara is a place to live. And my friend and and, uh, Metta teacher Sharon Salzberg says these are really wonderful houses to live in, just really wonderful places to live wonderful places for the mind to dwell in. So if the mind dwells in equanimity, the way I always envision it, I have a kind of a a structural image of uh, how it all works. Um, And just uh, this works for me. I think of the mind that's equanimous, like a a bowl of equanimity. Here's this bowl of equanimity or this (coughs) quantity of equanimity that has within it friendliness and compassion and empathic joy. Just as Donald said this afternoon, the equanimity that's full of wisdom is going along and it encounters just a neutral situation, a person going by, a a, a turkey going by, a deer going by, and anything going by. And it thinks, may you be well, may you be happy, may you be safe. Any one of the uh, meta phrases it's just a plain, equanimous equanimity. It's an equanimity that's meeting experience just with friendliness and, and with ease because what it meets doesn't startle it. Sometimes, as Donald talked about this afternoon, we meet something that startles us because it's, it's grievous and it's painful and it's terrible and it's just happened and the mind gets startled and the heart moves towards it at just at the same time that it's sometimes frightened by it. And to be able to establish, re-establish the equanimity or maintain the equanimity 
and still move forward towards it with with um, with blessing, with compassion. The the recognition, as as Donald said, it's uh, called in the text the quivering of the heart in response to the recognition of pain. And quivering is feeling along with, and the feeling that really is 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 um, uh, is placed in, held in wisdom. That compassion really is held in the wisdom that things happen in this world. Sometimes to people, sometimes to us, sometimes to other people. Things happen that are painful. We wish that it would pass. We hope that it will pass soon. We rest with a certain amount of confidence and faith in the fact that everything rises, everything that arises passes away. This will pass. Something different will happen. Something different will happen. So it's wisdom that maintains equanimity, that maintains the flow of compassion. I think the other half of that equanimity expressing itself in a situation that's not quite neutral or easy is when uh, the mind encounters something that's really quite special and wonderful. Um, Maybe good fortune is often spoken about. You hear about good fortune on somebody else. Someone phones you, a friend that you love a lot calls and says, you'll be surprised. You, you, you'll never believe it. Today, I got a promotion in work, and I'm making half again as much salary as I was on my old job. It's a really exciting new unit that I'm working on. And what's more, they invited me to join them for their weekly meeting. And while I was in the weekly meeting, I really appreciated what this other person was saying, and they appreciated what I said. We went out to lunch together, and what do you know? We fell in love with each other during the lunch. <laughs> and, you know, we already have a date set up for this weekend, and I'm very excited. And, you know, that book project that I just sent in, I was waiting for an answer from, from my agent, and it looks very promising. And they, you're a very good friend, and you're delighted for them because you want them to have all those things. And at the same time, in your mind is a little voice that says, wait a minute, those are all things that I would also like to have. <laughs> so it's not that you wish that they would have less of that, but there's a part of you that's really a little bit pained. Oh, I'd like to have that also. And you really, you know, it's your best friend. You don't, Even if it's not your best friend, you don't feel like saying, you know, don't even tell me about it. It's hurting me. You want to say, terrific. That's wonderful. I'm so excited for you. But in order for me to be able to do that when that happens, you have to think to yourself, you have to, whoa, here comes my, my equanimity. It's getting challenged because I'm yearning for that. I really want it. Desire has arisen in me. Surprisingly, I forgot that I wanted that, but now I remember. I really, really want that. And to be able, gracefully, to be able to say, whoa, that's great. I'm so pleased for you, really. And, and in my mind, the equanimity is resettling because it's, something is going on in the wisdom component that says things happen according to karmic conditions. This is not the time for you to have that. Maybe your time will come soon. May it come soon. I really want some of that time soon. And I'm really happy for my friend. You balance your own mind back into the equanimity. And then you say, that's great, fabulous. You know, that, that it's a way of recognizing in ourselves our own humanness in 
terrible situations, we want to help, but we're a little bit repelled, okay? Calm it out and, and move forward. And in these kinds of things, we're a little bit repelled. Oh, I want that too. Calm it out. Say, okay, here I am. Because it feels better to be able to tell yourself the truth. You don't have to tell the other person really and diminish this. But to tell yourself, I want that too. I really want that too. May it come soon. And here I am. And may they thrive. And may they be well. And I love you. May you be well. Does that make sense to you? Does it? Because it seems so important to me. It seems to people when they hear about mudita, you know, rejoicing in other people's good fortune, that it should be such an easy practice. It's not so easy. It, because if you're rejoicing in something that you would also like to have, it brings up your own yearning. So to acknowledge it and then rejoice. Acknowledge it and remember it's not my turn. May it be my turn soon. Just as, as somehow... If I ignore my heart, then it won't go along with me. If I say, okay, I remember you, and then it cooperates with me. So I thought, if I, that's as much as I want to teach for a little while. I thought maybe we'd sit for five minutes, and then Donald will teach some more. But in that five minutes, I'd like to suggest that take some breaths and settle yourself down, and think of some, somebody that you know that's currently in some really good place, some great situation. Maybe more than one. It'd be great if you could think of more than one different situations. And breathe, breathe, breathe. Maybe three long breaths in and out and feel yourself here. And then think of somebody in a really specially good situation. And see how it feels to say something in your mind, like I rejoice in your happiness or in your good fortune. May it continue. I rejoice in your good fortune. May it continue. Something like that. And if you, and watch. If you need to say, to, if, if you want to say to yourself, I feel envy in myself for a little bit. Oh, I'd like that good fortune too. Now is not my time. May it happen soon. And I rejoice in this person's good fortune. May it continue. See what happens for you. Play with it a little bit.
Traditionally, the mudita practice, can you hear me okay in the back? Is it okay? okay? Traditionally, the mudita practice was taught in only in reference to others, not in reference to self. And uh, I don't know whether it's... Um, Western individualism wanting it otherwise. But uh, many of us consider that it actually can be very beneficial to appreciate one's own good fortune as well, not just the good fortune of others. And that this could be done in the traditional practice of mudita, but a way that seems even more accessible is that of gratitude practice. And it's gratitude for what is wonderful or beautiful or positive in one's own life. And can be a very wonderful practice that I think really can be a powerful adjunct or complement to loving kindness practice. Can be done very, very simply in in a few different ways. One is to reflect on what one's grateful for in one's life even to write them down, have a list of five or ten. And every morning, look at those items. Look at those five or ten items and just bring them to mind and tune into the sense of gratitude. Tune into that ability to feel that this is positive. I think these practices are particularly effective for Westerners with our tendencies to focus on the problems or what's wrong with the situation or to be critical or judgmental. That we um, find that some of what stands in the way of the loving kindness flowing are these qualities of being maybe overly critical, judgmental, tending to focus on the negative. Does anyone have that tendency? (laughs) About 10% of the group (laughs) raise their hands. (laughs) And um, I actually think it's quite significant. I know for myself, I I, I mentioned this in the group, I was trained to be a uh, careful analytic uh, problem solver, able to analyze a problem at a moment's notice. And some of you may have had that background also. It's uh, helped pay for a number of months' rent through jobs. But um, it can, uh, in a way, become a habit that makes it uh, hard to tune into the positive, hard to tune. That's what the mudita practice or the gratitude practice and the gratitude practice do. They train us to go into what's beautiful, what's positive, and be able to do that and to notice what the resistance is to that. It's not at all to give up the capability of seeing what a problem is or or being able to understand it or act on it. I haven't lost my problem-solving capabilities. 
doing, but, uh, but the gratitude practice has been wonderful for establishing almost a new muscle of the heart. And if you believe that you tend to have that conditioning to focus on the problem, the negative, uh, what needs fixing, uh, have that critical or judgmental voice, mudita or gratitude practice is wonderful, wonderful balancing practice. And I think it also has this very uh, powerful effect on helping us to open the heart of loving kindness because I think it gets at some of what makes loving kindness sometimes harder. You know, I, I like the focus on uh, these lines, uh, wishing in gladness and in safety, because I think it really points to the way that um, in this practice we need a certain amount of safety. We need to be able to um, open up like that reading from Thomas Merton about the deeper her inner self being like a shy wild animal that only comes out when the conditions are right. And that's really the heart of loving kindness. And we need to have these um, conditions. We try to create them as best we can here because it's really the understanding that the heart of loving kindness and the heart of wisdom, we might say, are not produced. They're more given room for or uncovered. We try to create the conditions where they can manifest more. And that's what we do. The conditions are relative safety. The conditions are not having a lot to deal with, to think about unburdened by duties you know, from, the, from the text. And we, we want to let us have almost the, what, the, um, the privilege and the luxury to just be with our own presence, to see that which makes possible loving kindness, to see that which stands in the way, and just to keep going there. And we have a lot of confidence that when we stay with that pro- this process, the good heart comes out. It comes out, we practice more, it gets stabilized. We stabilize it first in relatively safe, unchallenging situations and then gradually bring it out into the entirety of our lives, including into challenging situations. You know, that, that way of learning, we, we need to stabilize first. We create these special protected environments. And the... the uh, practices help to help to uh, both leave room for the good heart to come out and then to give us ways of working with what seems to block the good heart. And maybe I'll just say one or two more things because we're kind of doing a little bit even more tonight a jazz model of Dharma talk, <laughs> which is to you know go into themes and come back and have different instruments play and so forth. And I just, I just wanted to say a little bit that, that this uh, practice of being uh, careful with uh, the voice that can be critical or judgmental, I think is a really big part of this practice. I know it's been really important for me as a recovering judgmental person. How many, any of you also that? Okay. Um, it's a big part of this practice and it's really pretty deeply conditioned. So part of what we 
notice in loving kindness practice as we're trying to be loving and maybe this sitting we don't feel the loving kindness as strongly as two hours ago and the critical voice can come up. Have you noticed that? Or it can come up about some aspect or other and we just need to start, we just need to notice that. Keep noticing that voice. Learn to recognize that actually it's trying to help us in its own often misguided way. (laughs) But we have to get familiar with that judgmental voice and we have to to develop uh, other ways of being with the situation, maybe more allowing or that way of developing mudita and gratitude and to... um, Bring that, bring that judgmental voice, which is strong for many of us, bring that into view. Really treat it with kindness. We have to be careful about judging the judge. It's a danger of practice, especially if we notice, gosh, I'm so judgmental. So many criticisms, you know. It's really, it's really totally getting in the way of my loving kindness. I want to get rid of it and <laughs> stomp it out. Right? And we, we want to be careful about that because it's ultimately, it's actually, if we look carefully, it often comes from a younger part of ourselves and it's actually trying to help us. And it may not do so with so much wisdom. That's really what it's about. Yet the voice that says, it was better two hours ago, why aren't you doing this? And there may be some wisdom there. Maybe it was flowing more readily two hours ago and it'd be nice to know what helps that. But the idea that we should judge ourselves, not so helpful, not so wise. (laughs) Okay. I was particularly thinking back when you were talking, uh, going back a few paragraphs, to uh, what you were saying about mudita for oneself uh, and, and being related to gratitude practice. I was also thinking about mudita about one's own, but really appreciating and rejoicing in one's own good fortune or one's own um, uh, success in some way. You know, if I see uh, uh, somebody, uh, I love to watch the Olympics, for instance, and you watch somebody do some amazing figure skating maneuver, and I'm so pleased that somebody can do that, you know? And, you know, I, I never wanted to be a figure skater. It's a, that my my children didn't want to be figure skaters, so it doesn't trigger any uh, personal need on my part. So I can unabashedly really rejoice in that person's talent. Or I I, I like I like opera very much. And I hear incredible voices, and I'm so pleased for them. And personally, I really cannot carry a tune very well at all. But I never want, I mean, it would have been nice, but it wasn't something that I wanted. So I'm thrilled to see that somebody does that very well. And I, I, it took me some time to realize that uh, there were things also that I did very well. And when I did them well, and I thought to myself, well, that was great, Sylvia, you really did that well. That particular teaching you did well. That was good, that was a really... And I, I'd have immediately a thought, wait, wait a minute, this is pride. Pride isn't so nice, and did well. That's... But then I decided that actually it's a form of mudita. You know, that I, it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a talent. 
and it's a talent that I worked on a little bit. So uh, why not appreciate it in myself? It happened, I, I remember being with uh, Upandita, one of the Burmese uh, uh, mindfulness teachers that uh, came to this country on different occasions and taught. And I remember working hard, uh, seeing Upandita day after day in interviews. It was very, very tough because he had to come in and really give an explicit account of what exactly went on in your meditation. And so when you went out from the interview, since you saw him on a daily schedule and the schedule was on the wall and you knew every day you go it from 9.40 to 9.45 is your time or whatever. So from you come out at 9.50, you say, phew, made it through. Then you start thinking, okay, I have 25 hours, 24 hours now, <laughs> minus about 15 minutes to have some other really good thing happen to me so I can report it tomorrow. It actually is very good for the diligence but I remember once uh, telling him about some, there are plenty of things that he questioned me about. He didn't say so many complimentary things. But on one occasion, he said something that I was doing was very good. It doesn't even matter what it was. But I had managed to sustain some kind of a mind state for a little while. And he said that, through an interpreter, he said, that's very good. And I was so, so finally, something good. That was great. The interpreter said, the Sayadaw said that that was very good that that happened to you because now it will give you faith and confidence. So I was very touched by that. It wasn't that the thing itself was so particularly good, but that having done something that was a measure of accomplishment, it's like having played that piece right or done something or other right, that I really could think about that accomplishment in a way that buoyed up my, 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 my zeal in further practice. He said, it's be good for your faith and confidence. So I think about noticing in oneself uh, one's own, one's own uh, talents or accomplishments, whatever they are, do something well. I learned that lesson so well from uh, a woman named Pearl Hendricks long gone from this world, uh, came to be a part-time housekeeper every day in my house. When my children were young and my husband and I were both working, uh, Pearl came and kept house and took care of my children for me while I was gone in the day. And this was back in the day that people ironed clothing. And uh, I came home one day, this is so long ago, I can't be- hardly believe that this just popped into my mind. I came home one day at the end of a long day and Pearl had been ironing and we had, you won't even believe this, we had an apparatus called an ironing tree. Do you know what an ironing tree is? An ironing tree is an apparatus that, uh, it's kind of like a freestanding clothes hanger that you hang things on after you've done ironing so you don't have to go back and forth to the closets individually. So I came in after a day at work and here Pearl had ironed all these blouses and different things. And I said, oh, Pearl, look at that. That's beautiful. Look at your beautiful ironing. And she said, it is. She said, I pride myself on my ironing. And I was so touched by that, you know. I had gone back to school. I'd gone to graduate school. I had a job in a, in a social agency. And I felt very good about my accomplishment. And I recognized 
that you could feel very good about your accomplishment regardless of what the accomplishment was. If you knew how to recognize, I did that well. I ironed really well. And I admired her so much, both for the ironing skill and for the reward that she gave herself by appreciating her skill, whatever it is. So that just it's a, a variation of mudita. Sometimes people say, I hear it sometimes when I'm talking with a practitioner. They say, you know, I feel like I know something special from this practice that other people don't know. And I feel maybe I'm, maybe I'm have a little smugness about that or pride about that. But I think actually we do know something special from this practice. We know that peace is possible and that expressing yourself in a loving way with people which is a lovely way to be in relationship and be in the world, is a possibility and it makes a certain faith and confidence in life. And it's a delight to know that one has that. I remember that I particularly felt that after my first experience of really working with metta for a a couple of weeks. Not so terribly long, maybe two weeks on retreat. And I'm feeling I had learned something that was going to hold up my me hold me up in difficult times, and I felt a tremendous boost in my confidence. Felt I could go back in my life that 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 the metta would hold me up. So I really want to say that about the difference between pride and uh, I don't even know what pride is. I really pride myself in my irony. I'm really proud of myself and all of you for doing this kind of work. We are really cultivating something special. It's a good thing that we did that. <laughs> one, of the, one of the reasons that we have been um, giving some attention to compassion and joy and equanimity as being uh, fellow family members with loving-kindness, is that as loving-kindness becomes more mature, it has the qualities of the other three. And it's really, really important that as we develop more with the loving-kindness, well, we sit with ourselves, and and maybe we we also, in bringing loving-kindness to others, Sometimes what comes up for ourselves in relation to ourselves is a hard part of our experience or we wish for safety and we reflect on ways that we're not safe or we, bring a, we wish for contentedness and look at the places where we're not contented or we, we bring loving kindness to our benefactor or friend or uh, maybe the difficult person and maybe we come up at times against a sense that there's some suffering, that there's some difficulty. You know, We find that in ourselves, we find that in others. And there, it really, in a way, at that moment, the open heart does become compassion. And compassion becomes be, becomes more infused with the loving-kindness. That it's a compassion, it's a loving-kindness which knows that there is suffering. And that's familiar with it. It's not, um, 
overly protected in that sense. And the loving kindness also, as we touch, maybe we feel the radiant quality of the heart or the glowing quality, or we feel uh, peace, or we feel something very spacious with the loving kindness, which can be there at times, and joy opens up. And we, our loving kindness becomes infused more with joy, with that, you know, and it's in that text, with a sense of peace, with a sense of uh, uh, increasing, at times, pure-heartedness is in the text. And that, and that brings about joy. And there's, there's uh, the, the wisdom quality coming in through equanimity, really crucial for loving kindness to be mature. Without the wisdom factor, loving kindness can be overly, what, sentimental, or even can be possessive or caught, you know, overly caught in the wishes. And the equanimity uh, sometimes relates to the loving kindness um, in a paradoxical way. You know, if you've, uh, one can do equanimity also as a formal practice. The line that I use is, no matter what I wish for, things are as they are. It's rather stark. And I may just have done loving kindness practice. I wish for this. And then equanimity says, no matter what you wish for, things are as they are. It's like, hmm. Like, and, and yet they coexist. And yet they coexist. That the, we wish for the well-being. And we also have wisdom. We know that there are causes and conditions for suffering and causes and conditions for freedom. And we know that, and yet we wish. Wish is really the response of the heart to care. Maybe the word wish is, can be misleading. It's really maybe better said it's about caring. It's about, the, it's about caring and compassion and warmth for oneself and others, isn't it? You know, and, and the wishes are an expression of that, but it's really the presence of caring. And it's really, maybe, maybe this is a less paradoxical or clearer way of saying it, that we keep caring no matter what happens. That's it, really. You know, that's, that, that's almost a good place for us to end. I think it's coming on 8.30. And I was thinking about... When I, one of the ways that I think about my practice in the world today, and we'll talk more about going out. We haven't been away from the world for so long, but going back to a, a regular life, um, away from here after tomorrow. And I think to myself, one of the aspects of my practice, if I describe it to people these days, is I, I check with myself, not am I saying phrases, not am I being aware of my breath, but in this moment, do I care? Am I able to connect with love? Am I capable of caring right now? Uh, I, th- I think about that as being... Um, really the indicator of where I am as a, as a kind of a check. Just as I said that to you, uh, I was thinking that maybe people were remembering that, uh, that children's book about Pierre. Do you remember Pierre? Uh, where the wild things are. Uh, who, uh, it's not where the... It's, not the, it's the same author. Maurice Sendak, Pierre. 
anyway, maybe it's too frivolous of a way to end. But Pierre, Pierre was a kind of a feisty little boy who said whatever his parents said. He said, "I don't care." Maybe that's this. Is, maybe it is a good way to end because it suddenly occurs to me that the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Because it looks like equanimity, but it's really indifference. So Pierre was a feisty little boy with indifference, and his parents said, do you want to do this, do you want to do that? Whatever his parents said, he said, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. And so his parents said, we're going to town, do you want to go? He said, I don't care. So they left him there, and Pierre said, I don't care. And while they were gone, a lion came, and the lion said, you know, I can eat you. And Pierre said, I don't care. So the lion ate Pierre. And then his parents came home and they found that they couldn't find Pierre. And they said to the lion, where's Pierre? And the lion said, I don't care. And and the parents said, Pierre's in there. So they shook the lion up and down. And out came Pierre, fine, all in one piece, of course. And he said, I care. So there you go. I think that's a pretty good fable to end on, the definition between equanimity and, and, and uh, indifference. Many levels of meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that yesterday we had sort of a rousing uh, nod or volley of approval when we said, why don't you take five minutes now and come back and then we'll sit until 9 o'clock and we can all go to bed. Who likes that? All in favor of that. <laughs> <laughs> I also like it. So thank you very much. Take, uh, this is so fun to just sit up here and talk, isn't it? <laughs> take five minutes and we'll be in silence. Take five minutes, stand up, stretch, go outside if you need to, and we'll sit until 9. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.